0: Well, um, because of the fact that we have a snow day, and I don't know if everybody's going to be around, Um, I have written a new sermon for today, instead of giving the one that I had planned on giving. Uh, That might mean that it's a little choppier than normal, uh, because it hasn't been in the hopper as long as they typically get to be in my mind and in my heart. Uh, But I know it's from the Lord, so I'm excited for that. So today we're going to talk about um, unity, and if you've got your Bible either with you or at home, we're going to be in Psalm 133, uh, and then John 17. Um, 15 through 26, and then we're going to bounce all over the place, because there's all sorts of Bible verses about unity, and it's kind of hard to talk about it from a limited perspective, so we'll, we'll do a little bit of a survey on God's desire for unity for us um, in his word, but before we get into that, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this time today. Thank you for the faithful saints who are gathered here with us, and those who are gathered at home. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be blessing those around us, and I pray that you would bless our church family Lord, that you would be with us as we are in your word today. Father, I am convinced that you have this great gift for us in unity, and I pray, Father, that you would help us to receive and walk in the blessing of unity as a church family. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, over the course of the Christmas season, one of the things that has struck me is the joy of giving to someone and the delight of watching them enjoy the gift. So um, just on Friday, my wife's family did Christmas. So a bunch of us were out of the country, not my family, but the rest of the family. And so we couldn't do Christmas when we normally would because they were doing Christmas with family elsewhere. So we gathered last week for Christmas or or Friday for Christmas. And one of the things that I observed is just the delight that kids have in receiving gifts. Like it's just a, a treasure when you're a little kid to receive a present. And then one of the things that I've noticed beyond that is that some adults have been able to capture that childlike delight in receiving a gift and continue to have that joy and gratitude in receiving. Well, I'm convinced that biblically, unity is a gift that the Lord has for us that he wants to give to us. But I'm also convinced that tragically, many of us don't realize that God has this gift for us. And we don't understand the fullness of the blessing that unity is for us as his church. And so God wants to establish unity in us. He wants to give it to us. But we have something that we need to do in return. We need to let God work in us. So as we look at unity, think about this. You need to let God work in you so that you will know the delight of unity. If God wants to give it, then you have to be ready to receive it. And sometimes we have thoughts and patterns and attitudes that are contrary to receiving the gifts that God has for us, right? So last week, uh, we sent the kids out with a little bit of a devotion on the love of God. And we said that the, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. And that's true of every believer. And yet, for some reason, we see this gap between how we act and this fact that the love of God has been poured out in us. So that gap is our willingness to let God work in us and to respond to him. And today we're going to be talking about responding to God's desire for unity for us. Uh, So let's look at Psalm 133 for just a moment. Uh, This is a a psalm of a sense. It's in the the section of the psalms that's all about worship. And this actually is written as a result of the giving of the law and the experience of consecrating the priests and having all the people gathered together as they worshiped God around the tabernacle, having received the law. So the psalm says this, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. It is like fine oil on the head running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beards and, uh, beard and onto his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. So if you're not really well-versed in the Old Testament, I want to describe this to you. God had redeemed the Israelites, his people, out of slavery and severe abuse in Egypt. They were being oppressed. Their kids were being murdered. It was a nasty situation. And God freed them through much turmoil and difficulty. And he called them to worship him in the desert. And he was sending them to live in the land of his promise, his grace, his faithfulness. He said, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to come behind you. I'm going to wrap you up. I'm going to dwell in your midst I will be your God, and you will be my people. And in the midst of that, he gave them a code of life, the the law, the Mosaic law, about how people could live in relationship with him, and how people could live in relationship with each other if they wanted the Lord to dwell in their midst. So it was a conditional covenant. They needed to obey in order to receive the blessing of God being in their midst, Now, we're not under that covenant, and nonetheless, we can see some blessing from this psalm. So, when the law was given, when the people were consecrated, the first thing that was given was a class of people who were responsible to help those who wanted to know God, know God. They were called the priests. So, a priest's job is to help people know God Part of that is that they offer sacrifices so that there can be reconciliation between God and people, but part of that is to train the people to know God and to live with him, or we can use the term walk with him, right? To live in a way that demonstrates their knowledge of God. And so if you're going to be a people with God in your midst, the priests are supremely important for you to have that reality, that blessing around you. So when the priests are dedicated or consecrated, this is a really big thing right? So uh, let's think about it this way. If you want to be a cabinet maker, you need to have tools and equipment and a shop to make cabinets. So the day that your shop opens, it'd be a really big deal. And all of that equipment would matter a lot to you because it's the way that you can achieve the goal that you have in your life. Well, the goal of Israel was to be God's nation, and so they needed these priests to lead them to be God's nation. They were key to this happening. The priesthood was essential, just like Jesus is essential to us. If we don't have Jesus, do we have a relationship with God? No, the answer is no. In the same way, if they didn't have priests, they wouldn't have had a relationship with God. And so what is being described is a picture of the priest being consecrated. The Lord says in Exodus to to Moses, he says, take Aaron and take his sons and put them in the priestly garments and bring them before all of the people and then dedicate them to me or consecrate them to me. And when you do that, I want you to pour oil out on their heads. And this oil is a sign of blessing, of rich blessing being poured out on them. And the cool thing is, is it's not just a little bit of oil. So uh, often if you've seen people anointed with oil in church services, they take oil and they like put it on their thumb and they kind of mark it on them or they put a little bit on them. This is not that way. This is like, Moses, get a big jug of oil and just start pouring that on Aaron's head and let it run down his hair and let it run down into his beard and let it go from his beard and fall onto the robes and just let him pour down on the robe, right? So this is... This is a big deal. This is a sign of rich blessing, of God pouring out his blessing on the people, and the Bible says that to the Lord, that is what unity is like. It's a rich blessing. It's a beautiful and abundant gift for God's people. How awesome is that, that there's that picture there? And then the second picture is it's like the dew on the mountains of Zion, okay? So Israel is a little bit of an arid place, right? There's not a lot of water there. And if you're going to grow things, those things are grown with the dew that falls on the mountains and comes down into the valley where you live. And so the dew is God's blessing and source of life for the people. And so this psalm portrays that God wants to pour unity on us as a rich blessing. And that that blessing, when we understand it, will build excitement and joy in our hearts. But beyond that, it's our source of life, that our unity as a church family is how we experience the life of Christ in our midst. I think this is why John tells the people that he was writing to that when we love each other, the love of Jesus is made real or made manifest among us. That the unity that we have in the church, our ability to express and appreciate or receive love from one another is very much so how the love of Christ is known in our church family. It's a big deal. Then the psalm concludes, for there the Lord has appointed blessing, life forevermore. So it's not just there on the mountain, it's there in unity. And then in John 17, we see Jesus pray for people who will believe in him. He's praying for his disciples, but he also says he's not just praying for his disciples, he's praying for those who will believe through the disciples. And this is part of his prayer. He says, as you sent me into the world, oh, pardon me, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believed in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I I'm in you. I'm not keeping up with myself. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them glory. Did this get out of order somehow? Sorry, everybody. We did some technical changing, and I think it messed with things a little bit. All right. Uh, May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you, have sent me, and have loved them, as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given me, to be with me where I am also, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you have loved me, before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not yet known you. However, I have, made you, I have known you, and they have known that you have sent me. I have made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Wow. So this is like Jesus' final moments on earth, and he's taking time to pray for us. And his prayer for us is largely about unity. You hear that? May they may be one, as you and I are one. I am in you, and you are in me, and I am in them. This is this massive prayer for divine unity with us and for us to experience divine unity with each other. And in the midst of that, there are two key things that stand out. First of all, sanctify them in your truth. Then your word is truth. And then Jesus says, I sanctify them as well so that they may be in the truth. And then after that, he's got that unity chunk And then he talks about love. So there's this necessity of truth and love for unity to exist in our midst. First of all, when we talk about truth, what are we talking about? Are we talking about our feelings? Are we talking about our desires and our will? No, we're talking about God and his truth and what he declares is true. Have you noticed how much the world around us is based on how we feel at the moment? I don't feel like that today. I don't really want to do that today. Well, here's my truth. Well, as soon as we start declaring, here's my truth, what we're actually trying to say is, here's my perspective, and I want you to accept it as an established fact without any challenge. I, I think, sadly, that speaks of a, a great deal of insecurity in our culture, in the world that we experience, and the way that we understand ourselves. And I think a lot of that is because we've moved away from the truth of God. The truth of God establishes us, it strengthens us, it helps us to be secure. When we don't have truth, the people don't know what to do. Proverbs says, where there is no vision, the people will perish, and we have put the 20th century America stamp on that, and what we've said is that is, if an organization doesn't have a vision statement, it's not going to live. And that's not what it's about at all. It's actually a wisdom statement. If the people don't have a vision for what it looks like to live according to God's truth, they will perish. People who leave God's truth perish. We have a culture, as a culture, are leaving God's truth And as a result, there's not the strength of life in us that we're we're required to have if we're going to thrive. And so God wants us to have that truth. He wants to set us aside in truth. He wants to devote us to specific purposes. Do you remember in Psalm 133, it said that that there was going to be pouring out of oil? That was an act of sanctification or consecration. And that means that I'm devoted to you. I'm devoted to the Lord specifically is what it's saying that my heart is for Him. Uh, You've seen lots of times when betrayal impacts an organization. Maybe you've experienced betrayal in a relationship where someone has said, I'm devoted to you, I'm consecrated to you, but then breaks that. Jesus is praying that our devotion to the Lord would not be broken. He asks God to set us aside for His purposes and His desires. I think that it's very safe for us to conclude that God desires unity in our church. In our church family is PBC, which is actually His church, right? We are His church. We're His people. It says that we're His dwelling place, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and God desires unity in us towards that end. So what is unity? Well, unity comes in two forms. It starts with having the same purpose. It starts with having the same purpose. In... John 17, Jesus, who is God, is praying to God the Father. They're two separate persons, right, in one unity, in a trinity. And where they have unity is, in large part, in purpose. They are united in purpose. Their purpose right then is our redemption, but ultimately God is glorifying himself in all history and in all creation. This is what he's devoted to, and that's good for us that he's devoted to that. And so he loves and so he's good and so he's redeemed but all of these things come from being united in the same purpose but also unity is a descriptor of having oneness and harmony oneness and harmony what does it look like to be in harmony with somebody else it really contains this idea of being in tune with them we just had this wonderful time of worship together what would have happened if everybody was tuned to a different key. Have you been to that middle school band concert? Me too. It doesn't feel very good inside, right? Their disunity causes me to feel disunity in here. The same thing is true in the church family. It's harmony and oneness as we come together. Now you'll notice what's lacking is this idea of uniformity. See, religion creates uniformity. When do we stand up? What Bible translation do we read? What do we wear to church? What do we look like and talk like? These are not things that God God is trying to create in our midst. There's uniformity in this. In fact, the church is supposed to be incredibly diverse. When you look at the church in Acts, what was the first thing that happened? The the tongues of fire descend, and they speak the languages of those around them. And Phrygians are saying, hey, you're speaking Phrygian. And Greeks are saying, hey, you're speaking Greek. And all of these dialects come to the church. Why is that happening? Well, God is calling the nations to him, and the church is to be filled with the nations. Now, we live in a place of relative racial homogeneity. There's not a lot of diversity on the peninsula. But what diversity is here, we should love that, because the Lord has created diversity. He has made us each different. And so unity actually celebrates diversity and appreciates diversity, but it finds this harmony and purpose It finds this oneness in the intent of who we are. So, how do we get to the place where we have this united purpose, where we have oneness and harmony? Where are we going to find that? Well, first, we need to recognize that Jesus is the source of unity. This is not something we have to produce ourselves. This is a gift for us. What's the Bible word for gifts that God gives us? Anybody know? Say it again, Matt. Mercy. Okay, God does give us mercy, and mercy is not receiving consequence we deserve, so that's actually God withholding something. What's the term for God giving us something? Grace. Yes, grace. Grace is the word of God's gift to us. So when it talks about grace in the Bible, we've talked about this before, sometimes we start off and we start talking about this concept of salvation. God gives me salvation through Jesus Christ. Yes, that is the doorway to grace. But man, when you step through that doorway and start exploring the Lord and knowing him, the amount of grace, the amount of gifts that he has for us is huge. In fact, in Ephesians it says that God has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places. That means that God has this treasury, this storehouse of riches for us, And all of those are available to us in Christ Jesus. And one of those blessings, and I think it's a big one, is unity. Jesus is the source of unity. He wants to give us unity. He unites us first with himself and then with each other. He wants to create that oneness of purpose and that harmony that is talked about as being so wonderful, as being the source of life. But then the second step is that we've gotta be devoted to unity. We need to be devoted to unity. You know, when I was a kid, I got gifts that I loved, and I got gifts that, well, I love those gifts, right? You, You remember that season where you'd get a gift from grandma and you were like, oh, thank you, grandma, and the reason you said that is because mom and dad trained you on the way to grandma's house, right? Like, okay, grandma's gonna give you gifts, and what do we say after you get gifts? Thank you. Now let me hear you do that. And maybe you didn't have to practice. Maybe I was just a stubborn and foolish kid. I don't know, but I had to practice so that it was believable that I was thanking grandma, right? And so it was an act. But then when I got home, what do you think happened to those gifts? They're gone, right? I'm not using that gift at all. I don't care for that gift, but I am using the gifts that I love. So we have to be devoted. We have to decide that we want this gift and that we want to utilize this gift. So you might find yourself in a place right now Where the lord is saying hey you're not unified with this person he might start convicting you of ways that you have been disunified with your church family whether it's us uh, where you go regularly or you're visiting us for whatever reason and and god is saying hey i want you to be unified well then the way to find that devotion is to say lord will you produce a love for others in me will you help me desire and be devoted to unity because this is a gift from you and you're telling me that i need that the first step in finding unity is saying lord i'm open to this And I recognize that I have not been pursuing this. I have not desired this in the way that you want me to desire it. And so when God wants to give us something, we have to recognize that we have to be willing to receive it, and if we're not, what's amazing is the Bible says we can repent, we can decide that his will is more important than our will, that he has the power to do it, and we can let him do it in us. Romans 10 tells us this, in Romans 10, 9, it says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved that's a verse written to us as believers that's the formula for spiritual transformation for us when i recognize there's something in me that the lord doesn't want or something that isn't in me that the lord does want i can recognize that jesus is lord that his will for me is greater than my will and i can repent of that and i can recognize that he's powerful that he raised jesus from the dead and that he can work his will out in me and what's the result of that i experience salvation from that present sin or that lack of His goodness in my life because He starts to cultivate His desire in me. He can work out my salvation in me. His faithfulness is there for when my faithfulness is not, amen? Isn't that an awesome blessing? So then let's talk about the things that you might need in your life, and this is just a few of them, to establish and experience the unity that God has for you to experience. A humble heart is fertile ground for the growth of unity. A humble heart is fertile ground for the growth of unity. So humility involves two things. The first thing that it involves is humble self-knowledge. It's an awareness that I'm not perfect. You know, the church is full of imperfect people. I, I laugh when people say, the church is full of hypocrites. And I just think, who, what, what is, I don't understand I think the church is full of people who are imperfect, who are trying to do their best to please the Lord. They're not walking around saying they're amazing. They're actually walking around saying Jesus is amazing and he's saving me, right? Like that's our story. That's our confession, which doesn't make us hypocrites. It makes us realists because I'm very well aware that I have faults. In fact, I find that sometimes people reflect to me my faults and I'm like, Yes, and it's worse than that because let me tell you what's happening in here while you're experiencing that, right? And usually that's when their face gets more sad. And I'm not saying that to hurt them. I just want them to know, like, Jesus is still saving a wretch like me. Have you, have you ever had that experience before where you're like, man, Jesus is still working in me? That's, that's a humble heart. But there's a second step of humility, and it's to decide to be a servant of other people. That's our call to humility. is to recognize our ongoing need of salvation and to decide to serve other people. And Jesus is our example in that. In Philippians, Paul writes this. Well, the Holy Spirit writes this through Paul. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So he's saying, you need to decide that other people, that who they are, that their interests, that they're more important than yours. You're going to serve them in the way you live. And then he says, consider the mindset of Christ. He says, has this mindset in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And he lays out how Jesus was a, perf- excuse me, a perfect and obedient servant even unto the point of death. You know, I, I want to remind you at this point in time because you might be realizing I, I'm not very good at serving. Or or you might be feeling like this person in my life isn't very good at serving, and and I'm feeling like their pride is crushing me. This is where we want to go back to that point of asking for the Lord to work in us, that that trust that He is producing that unity, and just to tell the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry that I've been prideful and not humble. I'm sorry that I haven't made myself a servant, but instead I've been asking other people to serve me. I'm sorry that I've decided that my desires are more important than the desires of the people around me. Will you produce in me the humility of Christ? You're not going to run into Christ-like unity on your own strength. Only the Holy Spirit can produce that in you. The next thing that you're going to need is forgiveness. And forgiveness fixes unity. This is an intentional pastoral double entendre, and I apologize for that but I wrote it and I just thought, oh, that just tickles my heart too much to say it any other way. So there's two kinds of fixing things. And the first kind of fixing things that we often say is we're taking something that's broken and we're making it whole again, right? We're taking something that's broken and we're making it whole again. My kids come to me often with things, they're like, it broke, can you fix it? And, and I'm sad to say that like 90% of the time with the toys, toys that are shipped to us from Amazon or Walmart or whatever, they're not fixable, right? They're just not. They're not durable, they're not made to last, they've got like little plastic bits and they're no good. But sometimes I can fix it, I can repair it and mend it so that it's like it was before. And so forgiveness fixes unity. Because sometimes people do things that break unity with us. They hurt us, they harm us, they sin against the Lord, they, they embrace truth that isn't truth, that's actually a lie, right? And it's hard to be unified in those circumstances. And us forgiving fixes unity, it restores unity. We experience this in our relationship with God. When we sin, when we turn our backs on God and His desire for our lives, it causes disharmony between us and the Lord. It creates separation. It's not that the Lord is willing for separation. It's that we're not willing for unity with God. And as we repent and receive forgiveness, there's restoration and there's wholeness brought again. In 1 John 1, it says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, John, John doesn't mean this in theory. Now, I've met Christians who are, in theory, not perfect. But by the way that they live, they pretty much think that they're perfect and expect you to treat them as if they are. That always breaks my heart because I know that they're not just hurting their relationship with me. They've actually hurt their relationship with the Lord because they're unwilling to let the Holy Spirit perform part of His ministry in their hearts, which is to convict them of their sin and the need for closeness with God. And so let yourself be convicted and let yourself be restored to the Lord. But not only that, let's let ourselves forgive and to be forgiven in the church family. You know, it's sad, I've I've walked into churches and I've I've felt a lack of unity before and and if I'm there long enough and become trusted and I start finding out, sometimes I find out that disunity is decades old. That something happened during a potluck or a project or after church one day or between two families' kids and all of a sudden there's this rift in God's family. It's not that God desires that rift, it's that these people can't forgive and restore. That they're unwilling to let the Lord produce this. And again, I want to go back to that. The depth of forgiveness, the power that's needed for restoration, we cannot find on our own. It has to be the Lord's work in our hearts. We're desperate for his work in us when we need forgiveness and restoration. We're desperate for his work in those people who have been hurt by us or who have hurt us so that we can experience this. So forgiveness fixes unity. But in a greater way, forgiveness uses a different definition of fix. So one definition of fix is to establish or to, uh, to place. So when you glue two pieces of wood together, you have fixed them in place. When you nail shingles to a roof, you have fixed them in place. You have set them in place and they have been established. Forgiveness establishes unity. Jesus forgiving us. Jesus forgiving us establishes unity. And so the Bible says this, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. So you were forgiven and you were sealed for the day of redemption. Therefore, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Wow. And be compassionate and kind to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. That's Ephesians 4.31. 32. You have been redeemed, you've been bought from slavery to sin, from alienation and hostility to God to relationship with him. You've been forgiven and so you've been brought into Christ if you have faith in Christ, and you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Therefore, live like people who have been redeemed and forgiven and sealed. Put away bitterness, put away malice and wrath and shouting and slander, be tender-hearted and compassionate, forgive as you have been forgiven. Wow, that's amazing. Have you been a part of a family where there's shouting before, where there's anger and hurt feelings, where there's ill will and hostility? And it's heartbreaking to be in those situations. I've been in church families like that, and I've experienced that in my own family, where a lack of forgiveness. A lack of tenderheartedness and compassion breaks unity down. It causes my heart to ache. It causes my heart to ache at times because I know that I've been in that place. I'm not not a perfect person. I make mistakes too. But God is saying, forgive as you have been forgiven. Our forgiveness of others is established through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus wait to forgive you until you were ready to apologize? When you were ready to repent? No. Romans says at the right time, Jesus died for us. The perfect time. While we were still God's enemies. Wow. So if God was willing to forgive while we were his enemies, how should we be willing to forgive? While other people are our enemies. God wrote the check for our peace long before we were willing to cash it. Forgiveness doesn't mean restoration automatically. But it means a willingness for restoration when the other hearts are willing for repentance, right? Repentance creates restoration, but forgiveness establishes the opportunity for it. If you're waiting to forgive until somebody else is perfect, until they've repented and changed, it's not gonna happen, because love is the environment that creates transformation. Without forgiveness and love, transformation can't occur. Malice and anger and shouting and wrath, this locks the difficulty in. And it doesn't allow any healing. Forgiveness fixes unity. It allows restoration, and it establishes it and makes it possible. Next, peace and love. The peace and love of Jesus cause unity to thrive. The peace and love of Jesus to cause unity to thrive. Again, this is being pointed back to who as the source for our unity? Jesus. Jesus is the source for our unity, and he's the one who works our unity out. Peace and love of Jesus cause unity to thrive. Colossians 3, 14 and 15. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ to which you were called in one body rule in your hearts and be thankful. Wow. You were called to unity. You were called to be in one body. How are you going to do that? You're going to let love be in our midst. You're going to let God's love work in your heart. You're going to love one another with a brotherly love. With a love that's from Christ. Put on love. It's the perfect bond of unity. So God's presenting us with a choice. You all got dressed today. Thank you. We appreciate that. It would have been an awkward church service if one of you didn't. You chose to get dressed today. You put on clothes. You may have taken off other clothes, or maybe you got out of bed like this. If you did, congratulations, because you all look pretty good but you put on clothes. God is offering you his love. Put it on. Let it be your covering, your coat. Let it protect you, but also let it be a representative. Let the love of Christ be your uniform. Isn't it amazing when you see a group of people in a uniform? Man, you see, what do you think about them? Wow, what are they doing here? Man, what, what are they going to do? Why, why, how did they get that way? And I love seeing, there have been some days where I've been in the airport with my family, and I'll see a unit or a part of a unit of men and women in the military walking through the airport. You just see they're together, right? You're like, those people all belong together, and they're going to go do something special, I hope. They're going to do something good for us. I love listening to their conversations. Sometimes it's a little weird. Sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes they're speaking truth. My family and I, we were traveling. My wife and I, shortly after 9-11, we were flying. And and that was back when they had, like, the red light, green light, yellow light thing in the airport. And depending upon the color of the light, it was harder to get through TSA. And it was, like, red light because there was a bomb threat that happened because of Al-Qaeda or something. So basically, we're, like, down to almost nothing, right? Like, belt off, shoes off, socks off, everything out of your pocket. Go through the X-ray machine twice. Go through all your belongings. Like, the whole thing, you know, it's like... My, my wife and I, we're pretty much not terrorists. I mean, I think we've established that at this point in time, we're, we're not terrorists, but, but we're not on the safe fly list, right? So you have to get to the airport an hour early, uh, there's like seven people there, and, and one of them is a TSA employee, so it's taking a long time. We're going through the line, and the people behind us are just complaining, this is ridiculous, our government is terrible, I hate these people, what do we have to do this for? And then like three guys in the military are being deployed, and they get to the airport, they're going to together, and those guys are like, man, stinking Al-Qaeda, messing with our lives. The other guys were like, yeah. And like their unity of the realism of the situation was just in contrast to the brokenness of the selfishness of this couple. They were like, those people are messing with our country and causing us hardship. And these people were like, oh, our country is the worst. They were falling into disunity over this. Those guys in the uniform, they had the truth, they had the right perspective. We're like that as Christians. When we put on love, When we clothe ourselves in the uniform of love, it changes us. It brings us to a place of unity. And we start speaking the truth together. And it starts being known that we're the people of Jesus. And that we believe what Jesus says. And we walk like Jesus lived. And we want his priorities for ourselves and the people around us. It's an awesome opportunity that we have to put on love. And then let the peace of Christ, to which you were called in one body, rule in your hearts. What does that mean it goes back to that jesus is lord thing if if jesus isn't the king of your life the the lord of your living it's hard to let his peace reign see jesus is a righteous king and he wants to rule your heart with righteousness and bring peace to you but that requires that you are willing to obey him that you're willing to listen to him that you would let him establish his peace in you in the way that you think Way that you approach people and the situations that you're in in life. Romans 12 10 says it like this Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. And saying, Church, be like a family. Love each other with brotherly affection. So we live out here on the West Coast, and my brothers and their family, they live in the Midwest in Chicago. And uh, I only get to see them occasionally. And man, when I see them, it's like an explosion of love. Um, I'm not the, I'm the biggest guy in my family, but my brothers are not far behind me. And so we walk into a place and it's like, whoa, those are big guys. And in the Midwest, 6'4 is not close to average, like 5'9 is average for guys. Okay, so my brothers are 5'11 and 6 foot. So we walk in the room, we're not the biggest guys ever, right? But like, those are big guys in the Midwest. And then, because we haven't seen each other in a long time, it's like, whoa, you're here! I have missed you so much! And there's this explosion of love and affection, and there's manly hugs, which involve slapping each other's backs like drums, so that everybody knows that we're brothers and not other people. And, and we're like affirming of each other in that way, so it's loud, there's pounding, and there's woo-hoo, and I can't believe it, and then, then there's talking, and there's catching up, and there's all of these emotions and feelings. and That's kind of like us getting together as a church family. I mean, I I have this mixed relationship with the part of our service where we greet each other in the middle of service, because I love the love in the room, right? But we can't contain it to two minutes. We have more than two minutes of love in our church family, and praise the Lord for that, because I've seen families that sit down at restaurants, and they have two minutes of love for each other. They can't talk, they got nothing, there's nothing in common, they don't know how to get along, and so they just Look at their devices and stare at their plates and pay their checks. And if that's your family, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to condemn you, but I know the Lord has greater purposes for your family than that. Just like he has greater purposes for us. And he wants this brotherly love to be in our midst. And so he gives us an instruction. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now this doesn't mean that we're like obsequious and weird to each other. When someone walks in the room into our church family, we're not like, sir. It's not like this weird showing of honor to each other, right? Uh, Honor is actually considering what the other person likes, how they enjoy things, what are their priorities, and you're making their life better by honoring them, by considering them. So in my family, uh, I'm the person who likes spicy food, and then there's three other people who like varying levels of spicy food. When I'm cooking, I don't make the food for me. I make the food for them because I'm honoring them. Their tongues are more important than my sense of taste. And so I honor them in my cooking. But there's other ways that we honor each other. You know, a few years ago, a friend was like, why don't you ever grow a beard, Chris? And I was like, well, my wife doesn't really like a beard. And he was like, well, why Why would you let her likes decide what's on your face? And I was like, because she's the one kissing my face. And I want her to like my face. And so I make my face honor her. And my friend Chris, on the other hand, his wife loves a beard. And one time he shaved, he surprised her, and she was like, yuck! What did you do that to your face for, right? And luckily, Chris is one of these guys that can grow a a beard like the peninsula grows blackberries. I mean, it's just like luscious and beautiful. He's got that man beard, right? And so it works out for them. We're called to honor each other. This is part of marriage, right? But it's also part of a church family is honoring each other in the way that we live. You know, one time this family was on vacation for a while, and, and, and I forgot that the husband had been sick, and they, they stopped by the church on their way into town, which was amazing. They didn't have to. They stopped by to say hi. And he walked in the door, and I was so excited. I grabbed his hand with a great handshake, and I gave him a big hug. And like 10 minutes later, he's like, Chris, sometimes you've got to consider whose hand you're shaking. And I was like, what do you mean, Mike? He's like, that kind of hurt a bit. I don't know if you noticed, but my hand's a little bit messed up, and I, I fell down, and I scraped it, and I crushed it on that trip, and it's still healing. Can you be more careful? I didn't honor Mike in my hug. That was a hug that honored me and my love for him. And I, I realized in that moment that I, I need to consider how I'm loving so that the love is fitting. He wanted to be greeted and cared for. He didn't begrudge it, but he just he needed tenderness in that moment, and I, I needed to consider his needs before my own my own need to express my love for him, right? It's not that my, my desire was wrong, but it just had to be fitting. And so honor makes our mutual love for another fit really well, you know? We, we don't have a men's tea every year. It just wouldn't work. The ladies love their tea. But we, we, we make our love work for the other person in the church family. I couldn't help but dwell on this verse for a little while, so I looked up other translations. The King James Version says this, Be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. now preferring the honor of the other instead of our own. The ESV, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing this honor. NLT, love each other with genuine affection. Take delight. Take delight in honoring each other. What do you think of when you think of delight? I think of Tillamook mudslide ice cream. It's not even my favorite flavor, but the first time I had it, I was like, whoa. That that is delightful. How can I put more of that right here? I would like this flavor in my mouth more. I was delighting in it. I was savoring it. I was delighting in it. The message, be good friends who love deeply, wow. Puts it in real terms, right? Practice playing second fiddle. Hmm. Make it your habit to not be the most important person in the room. Make sure the other people know that they're in first place in your hearts. That's a big instruction. I've got to admit that honestly, those verses are inspiring. But when I look at my life, I know that I, I can't produce them on my own. I can't be the one who makes this happen. I can't cause unity to be in our church family. I can't even cause unity to come from me all the time. And sometimes the people I love the most, I have the strongest hard feelings towards. Sometimes the people that are most important to me inside, I feel the most Tyrannosaurus Rex-like. Have you ever had that moment where like, one moment you're like a, a cuddly teddy bear with someone and then something happens and then you're just... Ragosaurus and you want to like destroy them, and maybe I'm the only person in the room with this problem, but, but I, I've just discovered that somehow in me there's a, a deep love for others, and yet on the other side of me there's a deep selfishness that wants to destroy that love, and sometimes destroy the other, and I don't like that part of me, I, I wish it would decrease, and I, I wish the love would increase, but I'm, I'm not in control of that. I'm in control of saying yes to love, and I'm in control of saying yes to Jesus. And you are too. And so you can choose today to say yes to Jesus in his unity, in his pouring out of love, in his giving of peace and reigning in your heart. But you have to let God work in you so that you will know the delight of unity. And like we said at the beginning, that delight of unity, man... It's a glorious celebration. and It's beautifully abundant, like oil being poured out on the priest's head, consecrating them and devoting them. And it's like life, like dew falling in the hills, watering the springs that feed us and form us. Unity is God's gift for us to cause joy and life and love to thrive in our midst. So let's be devoted to it. And let's let God work in our hearts so that he can produce it. Amen? All right, the worship team has prepared a final song, which I'm stoked about, so thank you, worship team. While they come up, let's just take a moment to pray, whether you're here or at home. Uh, Father, it's so clear in your word that you want to give us unity, that you want us to know you, that you want us to make your love and your peace describe what's happening. You want us to put on love you want us to be humble servants, Father. And all of these things we can say yes to, but we can't produce perfectly. And so, Lord, we, we repent, we apologize, and we just say we're sorry for not allowing Your unity to be present more. We pray, God, that You would form in us hearts that are willing to serve and recognize that we're not always perfect. Hearts that are willing to let your love and peace reign. Hearts that are willing to forgive and wait for repentance so that there can be restoration. Father, would you cause this church to blossom with unity? Would you cause us to be a church that looks unified by walking with you, by being clothed in your love and being devoted to you and to one another? Father, help us to be good at fiddling and always to be willing to be in the second chair. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.